Well, good morning. Good to see each of you. Welcome to Highlands, and it's great to gather together. I don't think I see any new guests. It's pretty easy to see out there this morning, but if you are a, a new guest other than our, our friends from Tampa, uh, welcome. It is great to have you. Uh, but even for those of you who are members and regular attenders, if you have any special prayer requests, you can use that Connect card in front of you and just put down a prayer request or two, and we will make sure as elders to pray for those during the week. Uh, this isn't exactly like it, but this sure reminds me of when COVID uh, kept us from meeting for about a month and a half. You probably don't remember that. How many of you remember COVID, right? Oh, some of you do. And we had, we had like 10 people of a support staff sitting out here. Jason was on the camera, and my staff was out here because just preaching to a camera is not something that most pastors are comfortable with or familiar with. And so it was always helpful to have just about 10 people out here to preach to because it is a living word to living souls. And I know that can be translated through the camera, uh, but sometimes when you're in that moment, you forget that. So if you're streaming with us this morning, uh, everyone here sends their greetings, hopes you're comfortable in your jammies with your coffee. And uh, <laughs> it is good to see those of you who are here with us this morning. Romans 3, what page you just read, says this, and I want you to feel it fresh. No one seeks God. No one does good, not even one. How do those words strike you? We have been looking at the storyline of the Bible rather than the Bible being a connection of disconnected stories or a collection of moralistic lessons. It's a single storyline that runs from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and we have been answering a few questions. Number one, what's wrong with the human race? Then what God has done about it, and how is it all going to turn out in the end? And we started by going all the way back to the book of Genesis, and for the last two weeks we have been in the book of Romans. And the Bible's single answer to what is wrong in the world is this, sin resulting in death. And that's a big problem. Matter of fact, Romans 3 is going to show us that it's a much deeper problem than many of us have, have originally thought. This time of year we are confronted with a curious celebration, aren't we? Called Halloween. I like to walk. I try to walk every single day. And recently I was walking by Arapahoe High School over here. And there is a full scene of about six almost life-size witches stirring a cauldron in someone's front yard. A couple of houses down, there is a 20-foot skeleton helping little four-foot skeletons onto the roof, and they're acting like they're breaking into the window. Skeletons and witches. All Saints Day was set by the Western Church, primarily the Catholic Church, on November 1st, when the dead are remembered. It is preceded by what was called Hallows, Hallowed, Holy Saint, Hallows Eve, the evening before All Saints Day. It was believed, superstitiously, without any biblical basis, that the dark forces were especially active the night before All Saints Day. All Saints Day 
on Hallow's Eve is what we now call Halloween. Long before All Saints Day, there was a Celtic festival called Samhain. And Samhain has really some of the same components that we see practiced in Halloween. Uh, in Samhain, it was a magical time where fairies could cast spells. The dead walked among the living, and the living could communicate with the dead, and they could visit with them. Scholars believe that Halloween's association with ghosts Food and fortune-telling began with these Celtic customs more than 2,000 years ago. In addition to that, Britons, early American settlers, immigrants from Ireland, Scotland, and Germany, along with Haitians and Africans, brought their own sorcery, witchcraft, voodoo, and beliefs about fire and black cats and the realm of the dead. It's not isolated to America and Europe. This past week, Mexicans have been taking part in what is called the Parade of the Katrinas. It even made the news. You can see people dressed up as the elegant female skeletal person by putting skeletons on their face, and then they decorate with flowers. And it's not supposed to be a creepy festival. It is humanity's attempt to try to understand this bridge between the living and the dead really what some of these Celtic and old festivals were also trying to do. Now, I'm not interested in whether you think a Christian can participate in Halloween activities or not. Certainly, we all agree you can't participate in the dark pagan roots and practices. But there is also another side to this where Christians do participate without any connection to its darker roots. That is a matter for you. That is a matter for individual soul liberty for you to decide. So that's not my point. My point is maybe the deeper question that these festivals and observances and skulls and witches prompt, and that is this. What fuels the human fascination with death? And what hope do you have beyond it? It seems like it's prompted by at least curiosity of the unknown. I've never seen what's next. I've never talked to anybody who's gone ahead. Nobody's come back and relayed a message to me that I know personally. Maybe it's the fear of the unexpected and the inevitable or the fact that no one has ever averted it. People hold a tenuous relationship with death in part because everyone has succumbed to its power. Think about that. We're not in Gaza right now or in a small town of Maine, but death could ride up on its pale horse to your front door today. Unexpected. And so there's this fear of us trying to answer these questions as we grapple with this unknown aspect which really is tethered to one of our questions and that is, what is wrong in the world and what has God done about it? The most infamous and influential religious leaders of the world have all died. Rabbis, popes, imams, monks, and popular preachers, 
Even, think about this, even Jesus died. Right? He, he died a real death. Well, what has God done about what is wrong? What has God done about sin resulting in death? And what has God done to relieve us of this payment, this wage that our sins deserve? And we've been looking at Romans 1 and 2. This morning we're going to go into 3. And this is Paul's version of the biblical story. Paul's version of this entire redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation. And by the end of Romans 2, last week, when John was finished, we understood this. All people, regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of economic bracket, we all stand on equal footing before God, religious and irreligious, pagan and synagogue-goer, or we would say church-goer, the moralist, the immoralist. Each one has been given revelation Each one has not responded to that revelation properly, and each are under God's wrath. That's Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. When you get into Romans chapter 3, you're ready for some good news. Now, it's already been glimpsed at. But in Romans 3, Paul continues to analyze what is wrong with the human race. It's a summary statement of the biblical doctrine of sin and of death and of judgment. It's interesting that Romans, not surprisingly, has echoes of Genesis all throughout it. Paul takes a lot of time talking about Adam, talking about sin, talking about death, talking about judgment, Cain individually, and the flood universally. But there's also sort of in this thread of redemptive history a story of hope throughout both books. Genesis and Romans. But as we get into chapter 3, we realize the problem is much deeper than we thought. And here's why. Romans 3.11 says this, No one seeks for God. No one does good. No, not one. And immediately, I think some of us feel this reaction inside of our heart. Like, wait a minute. Immediately we try to push forward our own righteousness. I'm not like that person. I'm not as evil as what they just did. I'm not like that group of people living in that geography. Certainly there's a difference. And yet God's estimation is this. No one seeks for Him. Well, what about this whole seeker generation? What about those who actually go looking for God? No one seeks for God. No one does good. No, not one. So here's a question. What if it's true that unless a person is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God? What if that's true? And what if it's true that when I am addressed as a sinner, it's not just a generic category of fallen human nature, but it is directed at me for my sins? And what if there really is a judgment day? And what if on that day I stand before God alone and I'm not hidden by a nation state or a family tree or a political party or a tribe or a religious institution, but I am there, as Hebrews 12 says, naked and exposed. This is why justification by faith 
alone is necessary. That's really the one point of the whole sermon this morning. Justification by faith alone is necessary. Why? Because we all individually deserve God's wrath. Every religion, every person is geared towards addressing what they believe to big to 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 believe to be the biggest problem facing humanity. We heard this morning about a Muslim outreach. Islam says we face the problem of ignorance. We are ignorant of Allah's will. If only people would read and follow the Quran, then the ignorance would be removed and we'd all submit. Because that's what Islam means. Islam is an Arabic word that does not mean peace. It means submission. It is an action. It is something we can do to achieve righteousness before Allah. Buddhism would posit this, that the problem is attachment to this world. If we can only achieve detachment then our sorrow would be removed and a type of righteous bliss called nirvana would be achieved. The word nirvana literally means blowing out or quenching as if blowing out the small flame of a candle and you're, you're blowing out this attachment to the world, a self-denial resulting in a type of self-achieved righteousness. And when you achieve that, you are then delivered from this cycle of reincarnation and you achieve a godlike status. Buddhism, like Islam, is an action, something to be done, something that can be achieved. Well, much of Judaism in the first century argued that the problem was disobedience. What was needed was a radical commitment to the law of God. So they had 613 of them to gauge your obedience. It was an obtainable law-keeping righteousness that would compel Yahweh to be favorable to them. Why? Because they've kept His laws. Well, like Buddhism and Islam, it is an action, something to be done. Each of those systems, each of those religions, along with many more like them, tries to establish its own righteousness just like Adam who said, it was the woman you gave to me. Or the woman who said, it was the serpent you allowed to come into the garden. Paul said in Romans 3.20, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Real quick, what does that word justified mean? Because if we're talking about the entire message of the book of Romans is justification by faith alone in Christ, what is justified? Well, it's a forensic term. It's a legal term. It means that you enter into God's courtroom and He makes a declaration. And He will look at you and your life and He will either declare you to be righteous or He will declare you to be unrighteous. Justification is to be legally declared righteous in God's sight. And the only way He will declare you to be righteous is if you are as righteous as His Son, Jesus Christ. 
as if you're perfect and pure. Titus 3.5 says this, He saved us, not because of works, not because of righteousness done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. And so Paul, if we go back to Romans 2, says this in Romans 2, verses 1 and then 3, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, have you done that? Ever? Have you done that this past week? It happens so subtly, doesn't it? Even just when you're like just having thoughts, sitting there with a hot cup of coffee, enjoying the backyard, and all of a sudden there it goes. Why was I why was I thinking that in condemnation of that person? How did they creep into my heart? And I came to such a quick Right? Legal decision based upon very few facts that I know about them. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And he's not saying that everyone is practicing the same exact kind of sins, but that you break the law in the same exact way. You break the laws of God just as they do. I mean, I'd never do that. I'd never be a that. But I'm condemned because I've coveted, I've been deceitful, and I've slandered. So he asks, do you suppose you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? You see, it's easy to clearly condemn the behavior of Romans 1, 26 to 27. Unnatural relationships, shameless acts, Romans 1, 26 to 27. God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. It's black and white to us. It's easy to condemn, isn't it? By the way, Paul's not giving us this list in Romans 1 to weaponize us so that we can launch these verses at other people. Because he continues to say in verse 29 of Romans 1, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. We're not given these verses in Romans to go around condemning each other. These verses condemn us. We all stand guilty before God. No one seeks God. No one loves God. No one does good. 
And so he says in Romans 2.1, Therefore you have no excuse. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. How severe is that? James 2 says this. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Guilty of even the verses that almost seem out of place to read out loud in the church. Guilty of all of it. And until you start to feel the weight of that condemnation, you'll never see the beauty of the gospel. You'll never fully understand the beauty of God's grace as a gift. Justification by faith alone is necessary. Why? Romans 1.18 The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against... What's the next word? All. Not specific. Not heinous. All. Ungodliness. And all unrighteousness. Not just those people's sins. Not just that culture's sins but all ungodliness. Not just the sins I don't struggle with. It's easy to call those out. Or those really perverted sins. But all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. It's comprehensive. It's complete. And it is that way on purpose. And all of these face God's wrath. Notice in verse 2, verse 8, he does not refer back to this sort of staggering list of sins in in chapter 1, but he simply says this, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. I mean, we show partiality even in categorizing our own sins, don't we? We compare... We, try, we feel better somehow because other people are a lot worse than us. We try to justify our socially acceptable sins. Like Jerry Bridges, he titled one of his books, Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate, Discontentment, Unthankfulness, Pride, Selfishness, Lack of con- Self-Control, Anger, and Judgmentalism. And, and, and Paul isn't dragging you through this to to sort of make you desperate and hopeless, he's trying to bring you to the point where you can see and receive the gift of God's grace. So Romans 3, 10 to 12, now we're into Romans. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I encourage you to read Scripture interactively, to sort of question what it says. Like here, really? Is that true? Like there's, I mean, I thought I'd met good people in my life. I thought I met good people that weren't Christians. I've actually met very good people who are Muslim in Nairobi, Kenya. I've met good people who are Hindu. I've met good Buddhists in Nepal. I've met, I've met very kind Muslims in Malaysia. As I travel the world, I meet very kind and loving people. So, so how is this true? 
It's interesting because if you look carefully, Paul is using terms of direction. No one seeks. That's a direction. All have turned aside. That's a direction. He's not really talking about behavior. He's talking about our heart posture towards God. No one is naturally inclined to go after God. Matter of fact, like Adam, we hide from Him. We hide from the very One who can help us. He's not talking necessarily about behavior first, but about a heart attitude towards God. And it's true. None is naturally righteous. No, not one. See, if we think of behavior first, here's here's what we'll do in a sermon like this. We will say, I'm certainly not as evil as the shooter in Maine. And then we feel pretty good about ourselves. Or the calloused savages of Hamas who took hostages. Or the morality police of Iran who beat a girl into a coma for not wearing her hijab who died just this past week. See, we're not like them. But do you know naturally you do have it in your heart to be like that? You just haven't acted upon it. Or your circumstances were different. Or your conditions were more favorable. But in your heart, there is no one good. There is no one righteous. There is none who seeks God. So relationally with God, we're the same, even though behaviorally we may be different. Paul, You know what Paul is doing here in Romans 3, right at the beginning again? He is unfolding the uncomfortable doctrine of sin or the uncomfortable doctrine of total depravity. And total depravity does not mean that you are as evil as you possibly can be. What it does mean is this. Every part of who you are has been spoiled by sin. Your mind, your will, and your emotions. People everywhere move away from God. And while they're doing that, they try to obtain a righteousness that they can present to God and say, justify me. And some people go off into the world and do that in anger, and some people come inside an evangelical church and try to do that through morality. And they say, justify me. Romans 3.23 stands. It says this, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person misses God's righteous standard. We have all eaten the forbidden fruit. We have all hid from God in the garden. We have all tried to blame others to establish our own righteousness. We have all been banned from access to the tree of life. We have all murdered our brother in anger. We have all been expelled from garden fellowship with God. We have all been placed under a curse and marked like Cain. We all face severe judgment like the generation of Noah. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, what is our hope? Because Paul doesn't stop just at the beginning of Romans. Look at Romans 3, verse 13. He goes to give, again, an uncomfortable description. Their throat is an open grave. 
They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Why? There is no fear of God before their eyes. And by the way, he's talking about even those who dressed in fine religious garments and had the honor of the people whom they ministered to. Justification by faith alone is necessary because Romans 2.11, God shows no partiality to the Jew or to the non-Jew. Let me go back to Romans 1 because here it is very clear that everyone stands guilty before God. The problem is not ignorance because everyone knows enough about God to know that they should honor Him. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in the things that have been made. So they are without what? They're without what? They're without excuse, but they haven't even responded to the general revelation that they have. So we're not merely ignorant of the truth. No, actually, we have the truth and we suppress it. We hold it down because in our hearts, Romans 1 is true. We are haters of God. We hate that the loving triune God is the God of creation. Justification by faith alone is necessary because no one can be justified by their own righteous works. So here's the good news. Look at Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may shut up. That's, that's, that's actually an accurate English rendering. But God, didn't you see? Shh. But God, I've been going to church. You see how much I give in the... But I'm not like those... Stop your mouth. Stop your excuses. Stop trying to justify yourself that the whole world may be held accountable to God for by the works of the law, any work... No human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I don't know if you've ever read John Bunyan's classic work, Pilgrim's Progress. The main character named Christian at the beginning of the story, at least early in the story, has this huge burden on his back. If you've seen this illustrated, I mean the burden is he can hardly walk under the load of it. That's the burden of sin. He's trying to find a way to get rid of this burden, and so he goes on this journey. As a pilgrim, he is progressing through this journey. Finally sees Mount Sinai, and he's like, there, there's my hope. Of course, there's lightnings and flashings, and he's thinking, I can climb that. The idea is I can keep the law. I can do this. I can be obedient enough to get rid of this burden. It represents Moses' law. And so he runs over to it and he tries to climb it, but he can't. It's too steep. It's steeper than he expected. 
And he continues and it gets steeper and steeper until finally the curve of the mountain, he's here and it's steeper and now finally the curve just does this. It's impossible to keep the law of God. And Christian discovers that justification cannot be found on Mount Sinai. He cannot get salvation by keeping the law. And so despairing the law, he goes on and finally he finds what? The gate, narrow, but a gate that leads to salvation. And the gate is Jesus Christ. And his, he doesn't even have to unstrap it. It just flies off of his back as he comes to know the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Romans 3.21 says this. This is, this is what John Bunyan was trying to show. The righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been revealed apart from the law. You can't keep the law. And he goes on to say this in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But notice, it doesn't stop there. And are justified. You are legally, it's not by the law, but you are legally declared righteous by His grace as a what? What is the next word? As a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a big word, propitiation, but it's an important word because we already saw how everyone is under God's wrath. And that word propitiation there is the appeasement of God's wrath. God not only provided a way for your wage to be paid, He provided a way for His wrath to be poured out on someone else. And it's in verse 24, Christ Jesus. And it is received by faith. Do you know if people were merely sinners and our problem was information, all we would need is a teacher to tell us what to do. But the problem is, and Paul's going to show you this later on in Romans, we're not just sinners. We are under sin. We are slaves to sin. We are under its power and its penalty. And we cannot escape it. So what you and I need, we need a liberator. We need a savior. We need a rescuer. And that is found in Jesus Christ. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So let me ask you, when death rides up on its pale horse, and you will now understand in a few minutes the difference between the living and the dead, will God declare you righteous, or will He declare you unrighteous? Will Jesus Christ have paid for your sin and rescued you or will you stand there ready to pay for your own sin? The key verse of Romans 1, and really all of Romans for that matter, is Romans 1, verse 17. For in it, and the it goes back to verse 16, which is the gospel, the good news. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by, here's how you're justified, Faith, belief, trust, confidence, reception of that gift of grace. The righteous shall, and I want this word to reverberate in your soul, shall live by faith, not die, 
but live. Life, eternal life, is granted to the person who has been declared righteous before God through his or her faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.